0: The broadcast is now
1: starting. All attendees are in listen-only mode.
0: Good everyone, and welcome to our webinar on Altered States, the credit outlooks for Illinois, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Connecticut. My name is Greg Clark. I'm head of research at DebtWire Municipals. Joining me today are Seth Brumby, deputy editor of DebtWire Municipals, two of our senior reporters, Caitlin Devitt and Kathy O'Donnell, and our reporter, who covers Connecticut, Javier Balmaceda. I doubt that it will come as any surprise to our listeners today that of all the states that have had problems recovering from the recession of roughly 8 to 10 years ago, these four states that we named, Illinois, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Connecticut are four of the states that are having the biggest problems. Another, Another issue is that many states, including these four, have not recovered from the last recession, at least in terms of budgetary and financial outlooks. And the next downturn, which will come sooner or later, will probably prove even more problematic for all states, and especially these four, as these states will start off from a weaker position than they did 10 years ago. These states tend to have Things in common, deficits, pension problems, and OPEB funding costs. Some have used one-time revenues, which of course only delays the inevitable day of reckoning. There are also political considerations. It's a lot easier to divide up a growing pie than a shrinking pie, which which in turn causes some of the controversies you've seen in different state legislatures and some of the late budget adoptions. Our reporters will discuss all these issues and also current activity in the primary and secondary markets. First up we have Seth. Seth Brummer to talk about
2: uh, New Jersey. Seth? Sure. So uh, New Jersey, in a nutshell, I was taking a look at both their uh, budget numbers and their CAFR and uh, CAFR being their uh, audited financial statements. And I I tried to juxtapose two numbers here, really. Uh, One was the unassigned general fund balance, which is reported in the CAFR. And the other one is the undesignated general state funds, which is reported in the budgets. And in both instances, it looks as though the liquidity cushion in New Jersey is dwindling. That said, it's pretty volatile. If you go back in previous years prior to fiscal year uh, 14, um, it was much higher than that. And and, um, excuse me, for the undesignated general state fund, it was higher than what we saw with um, fiscal year 18 and fiscal year 17 budgets. So uh, there could be some kind of elasticity there, but for the most part, uh, they've built up their liquidity cushion by essentially not funding their pensions. And as a result, their pensions are some of the most underfunded in the country. The aggregate pension funding ratio is 37%, um, their largest being the uh, teacher's pension annuity fund um, with the largest unfunded liability and then finally um, though it during Chris Christie's administration he did try and increase the contributions to the pension funds and their budget the state is budgeted to do two and a half billion for fiscal year 18 that's up from fiscal year 17 and again from fiscal year 16 too but it's well below the amount that they should be contributing on an annual basis and that's when we get to actually the new governor Phil Murphy he's a Democrat and he said that in his first term, he wants to get up to $5 billion in pension contributions. Now, these two bullet points right here, Greg, I got from publications NewJersey.com and New York Times which sat down with him in the waning weeks of the election. There's not a whole lot of detail behind it. For example, the $5 billion in pension contributions, is that $5 billion in aggregate over the first term or is that $5 billion annually? So it could be some vagueness there you can work with. Yeah. One one of the problems you run into when you're trying
0: to get a handle on what different states are going to do is that I don't think any two states budget in the same way. Sometimes they just show the general funds. Sometimes they show uh, other funds. Sometimes they don't tell you the the major aspects of their budgeting uh, assumptions or Revenue predictions—it's—it's it's, it's very tough sometimes to try to to try to get from the budget document itself comparable numbers to what's been audited.
2: Yeah, and then you throw on top of that a, a person who's entering the fray as a governor candidate. And they're obviously not working with, within the same systems and rules that you do have when you're budgeting and doing your financial statement. So there is some vagueness here, but we'll see how he does. Uh, he's going to try and uh, raise $1.3 billion in revenue by closing loopholes. This can still be seen as a bit of a tax raise on, uh, on the people in New Jersey, which is a huge problem for the state. And it could be even a bigger issue in light of tax reform that recently passed the the U.S. Senate and that is now or about to be in conference between the two chambers. New Jersey is third in the country behind Maryland, Connecticut, in terms of the percentage of population that uses the SALT deduction, and it's fourth largest in terms of the amount of money taxpayers save by deducting that. So if that goes away, that's going to be a huge tax increase on everybody there and we will see how that ripples through the economy. Moving on to uh, some other issues, you know, when we talk about states, we also like to talk about uh, their instruments and their agencies and their municipalities. Uh, New Jersey being uh, one of the older states in the union has some very complex uh, local governing structures, so I'm not going to get too much into that, but what I do want to point out, is that the state does have some kind of oversight for its distressed municipalities. That's run through the New Jersey Department of Community Affairs. Uh, The main way of funding distressed cities is through transitional aid. And as you can see there in fiscal year 17, Patterson received the most, followed by Trenton. In fiscal year 16, no surprise to anybody, it's Atlantic City, followed by Newark. Um, what's interesting to note is that in fiscal year 16, you had nine cities apply for transitional aid, and then fiscal year 17, you had only four cities. Whether or not that might be a leading indicator of improved local finances, we'll have to wait and see, but if anything, it's it's good to see that the state is not supporting so much uh, on the local level. Just and, and what's interesting is
0: that New Jersey uh, tends to be one of the states that takes a little bit a little bit more of a role than in other states such as California, for instance. If you think of the California city bankruptcy filings, the state's attitude was pretty much uh they certainly didn't loan anybody any money.
2: Yeah. And as we saw with Atlantic City, there is a quote unquote czar installed to manage the city um and help it come out, help it negotiate with its uh unions, um, help it to raise revenues and how to spend money. Um I believe that a lot of these sagas are still ongoing with regard to the disposition of some of the city's assets, but yes, you're right. The state certainly takes a much heavier role than we see in other areas. Um, I just wanted to move to the next slide, which is uh, New Jersey's long-term liabilities. So bringing it back up to kind of big picture balance sheet stuff, uh, you have 171 billion in total liabilities for the state. That's an increase of almost 20 billion from fiscal year 15. These are all audited numbers, by the way. Uh, New Jersey has a unique funding structure. It doesn't issue a lot of general obligation bonds. It issues a lot of revenue bonds, which to me perform more like appropriation debt. Um, But the the state calls it revenue, so fine, we'll call it revenue too. The tobacco bonds are non-recourse to the state. I do want to be upfront about that, but it's still a pretty chunky part of the consolidated balance sheet, so I did want to note it here. And then finally, other post-employment benefits and that pension liabilities is really what the underlying problems are um, for the balance sheet. And that's what a lot of people point toward as being New Jersey's biggest problem going into uh, Murphy's candidate, Um, excuse me, Murphy's tenure. Uh, Total debt service, uh, 2.3 billion relatively flat uh, pension contributions as we went through them earlier. Um, The OPEB contributions, there's a little more detail in the CAFR about these. So, uh, again, drastically underfunded, though, with contributions being well beneath what the annual actual cost is. So that's something we'll see how well uh, Governor Murphy funds them. I didn't find much about his stance on OPEBs, and perhaps that $5 billion number incorporates OPEB contributions as well. We'll see. And finally, I just wanted to bring this all back to the market. Uh, these are some secondary market prices on some of the transportation trust fund bonds, which is the uh, the revenue debt that we often see consolidated, that we see consolidated in New Jersey's financial statements. Um, it's certainly the more liquid part of the capital structure there. And in taking a look at their bonds, uh, you know, it's it's no surprise that prices have increased this year. Um, I think as you're going to see as we go through this presentation on all these states, though, New Jersey probably had its act together ahead of uh, Connecticut, certainly ahead of Pennsylvania and Illinois too in terms of getting its budget and its numbers together and I think you can see that confidence reflected in the market. One thing to note though is in that last couple of months there in between October and November, you see probably the largest price appreciation over the shortest amount of time. That was coincident with Governor Murphy. Um, so who knows, maybe, maybe the market likes what he does with the state's finances. Let's hope the market's is correct.
0: Um, next on our list is Pennsylvania, Kathy O'Donnell will tell us a little bit more about the Keystone State.
3: Thank you, Greg. Um, as you can see um, on the uh, the first bullet point, uh, Pennsylvania has an unassigned general fund deficit of $1.7 billion, or had I should say, at uh, the 30th of June 2016 and unaudited results for fiscal year 17 show a deficit of uh, $1.54 billion. And the projected fiscal year 23 deficit is $2.19 billion. Um, As I'm sure you're aware, Pennsylvania saw a very contentious budget battle. Um, Governor Tom Wolf kicked off the budget season by calling for a natural uh, gas severance tax, among other deficit closing measures, but he pledged no broad-based taxes. Um, So legislators then passed a spending plan by the 30th of June, but they did not agree on a revenue plan until the end of October. And that led a very frustrated Wolf in early October to, as he described it, draw a line in the sand and he put the blame squarely um, on House Republicans for the delay. Um, So Wolf at that time said um, that the House Republicans would rather see me fail than Pennsylvania succeed. And given that there was no revenue plan on his desk, he said he was going to take control of state finances, and he announced a plan to securitize state liquor sale profits, which was seen as a real poke in the eye to the Republicans who want to privatize the state's liquor system.
0: Yeah, the rhetoric, the rhetoric got pretty heated there towards the end.
3: It certainly did. It you was, could see it it. was
0: uh, almost Trumpian.
3: <laughs> yeah, so... Um, but eventually, the legislature did arrive at a spending plan, and it includes um, $1.5 billion, um, uh, deal to securitize uh, tobacco settlement payments. Um, and that is expected to be done, I believe, by the end of February. Um, and also, uh, they would take some money uh, from certain state funds that had kind of been, as they said, idling. Um but both of those were seen as one time uh, measures and not the recurring revenues that the state needs to have um and looking ahead um there is a gubernatorial race coming up in uh twenty eighteen and the severance tax is likely going to continue to be a hot button issue um, Proponents say that Pennsylvania is the only state without a you know a gas producing state I should say that doesn't have a severance tax um those against the tax say that drillers already are subject to an impact fee and that a severance tax could drive this industry out of Pennsylvania and be a job killer. Um, so the in the governor's race, it's going to pit Wolf, the incumbent, against State Senator Scott Wagner, who was heard on uh, at an event to say that they could not let a severance tax pass because it would help Wolf win. Um, and the other, uh, one of the other challengers among the four challenging wolf, uh, four Republicans I should say challenging wolf, is House Speaker um, Terzai, who according to one study was the top recipient of gas industry contributions in 2016. Um, so that, um, that ex- that should be a pretty interesting battle to watch and I think uh, forecast possibly a another contentious bu- budget battle ahead. Um, so moving ahead um, to um, pensions and OPEB um, PERS, which is Public School Employees Retirement System, uh, they were fifty-seven point three percent funded as of June thirtieth, two thousand sixteen. SERS, uh, which is the State Employees Retirement System, they were fifty-eight point one percent funded as of um, thirty-one December, uh, two thousand sixteen. Uh, PERS OPEB net liability was at two billion at uh, June thirtieth, two thousand seventeen and serves at uh, 940 million as of uh, June 30th, 2016.
2: Um, you know, it's interesting, Kathy, is when I was doing some research on New Jersey, one of New Jersey's biggest problem is out-migration, and where a lot of people are moving to is to Pennsylvania, but yet Pennsylvania has its own demographic issues too with the aging population there. If, if I'm correct, it's one of the older states in the country,
3: Yes, correct? I believe it's the second oldest state if I'm not mistaken. Um, That's what
0: I've heard, only yeah. second only to Florida.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: So um, from 2020, uh, uh, 20, I believe, to um, 2025, the demographic trends are going to affect the budget uh, population. Uh, the working age population is expected to contract and um, higher paid workers will be, you know, the baby boomers who had kind of the manufacturing jobs will be replaced by uh, a cohort of lower paid workers, so that is going to be challenging. Um, some of the biggest job gains uh, that we've seen in Pennsylvania have been in healthcare and social services, professional services, and leisure and hospitality.
0: And th- those are also industries that don't pay as much as manufacturing, mm-hmm. at least not traditionally.
3: Yeah. So, um, so that will be a challenge. Um, and just moving ahead to um, just if we could look at um, some trading activity. Um, it looks like um, that uh, around September-ish, um, as people started to realize that this budget battle was going to continue and didn't look like it was going to get resolved, um, spreads started to uh, to widen a bit, and uh, that is that is evident as you can see there from the trading pattern.
2: Yeah, it really seemed like the market was kind of bullish on Pennsylvania throughout the uh the late spring and early summer and then I guess when I guess they they, they got their, their spending package together but then it took them so long to get the revenue package and then as as you pointed out a downgrade too in the midst of that the market really cooled off on its bullish stance on the state. Unlike as I'd pointed out earlier in New Jersey where the market just kind of kept rallying through the uh through the summer and into the fall. I, I think that some people, no one on
0: this call, but some people were also kind of led into a, uh, the belief that Pennsylvania actually had a budget when they really only had one half of a budget. They, on, they only had the, uh, the expenditure side. Uh, I know I saw a lot of mentions in the press about how Connecticut was the only state that didn't have a balanced budget, or excuse me, hadn't adopted a budget, and that wasn't true because Pennsylvania hadn't. In any event, uh, thank you, Kathy. And Javier, would you like to tell us what's going on in Connecticut?
1: Sure, Greg. Um, I'll be providing a general profile of Connecticut, the nutmeg state. As you can see in that first slide, I wanted to begin by talking about Connecticut's structural imbalance. I won't go too far into the past. In fact, I wanted to begin at the end of fiscal year 2016, for which we have the last audited financial statements. And that year, Connecticut closed with an unassigned deficit of $999 million, so essentially a billion dollars. A big part of that deficit is explained by the fact that during fiscal 16, Connecticut experienced quite an increase in spending. The increase by itself, of course, isn't necessarily a bad thing, but when you're running deficits, you definitely want to rein in spending to the extent possible. And without going too much into the weeds, I will say that the two elements that were largely responsible for spending growth that year are, I think, quite telling because one is debt service and the other is pensions. And these are two issues that, as you all know, have certainly been plaguing the state for quite some time now. In addition to expenditures, I wanted to also mention that general fund revenues expanded during that year too. But again, that growth, and I'm quoting here directly from the audited statements, was well below the original anticipated rate of growth. And so, as the slide mentions in the second bullet point, the story back then and the story today is one of rising pension costs and debt service, and of course, missed revenue forecasts. Fast forward to today, and Connecticut is still in poor shape. And I say that for a couple of reasons, first and foremost. It wasn't until just recently that the state was finally able to break a historic budget impasse that lasted 123 days, so well into the ongoing fiscal year 2018, which began on July 1st. I'll speak a little bit more about political complications soon, but at least in terms of finances, you know, this budget was supposed to close deficits. And I should mention that Connecticut approves biennial budgets. So this spending plan allegedly closed a combined deficit of roughly $5 billion for Fiscal 18 and Fiscal 19. And the problem is that just a few weeks after Connecticut was finally able to approve this thing, the State's Comptroller Office said that there's actually a new deficit projected for Fiscal Year 18, and it's about $208 million, which is the figure you see in the slide. Uh, considering that the state's rainy fund balance is just a little over $210 million, that means that the state has barely enough funds to close that deficit. And that's assuming, of course, that projections won't increase as the year moves along. And I'm not even looking at fiscal 19, which very well might run deficits too, if fiscal 18 serves as any indication. The outlook beyond the biennium looks actually even grimmer. The budget itself and a letter written by Governor Dan Malloy when the budget was finally approved, uh, both of these documents highlight that in the three fiscal years immediately following the biennium, Connecticut is looking at growing deficits and growing is certainly a key word here. Uh, You can see the specific numbers on the slide. It certainly doesn't look good and by both the Governor's and the Legislature's own admission, Connecticut is looking at pretty daunting challenges in years to come.
0: It'll take some pretty heavy lifting on the part of both the governor, whoever it is at that point. Uh, I know Governor Malloy has said, if I'm, if I'm correct, he's not going to run for re-election. That's right, Greg. And uh, the legislature uh, to close gaps of this magnitude.
1: Yeah, we'll, we'll see a little bit more about the, the political complications in the third slide. Um, in, in the second slide, though, uh, there are two other issues. Uh, One is pensions, as we mentioned before, it's one of the state's most pressing issues. Uh, As you can see on the slide, the state's two largest pension systems are very poorly funded, and Connecticut's unfunded pension costs, uh, which amount to over $25 billion, are among the highest in the country. And that's, of course, not even counting uh, other post-employment benefits, OPEBs. The bill there is around $23 billion, according to Pew Research. I uh, did want to mention, though, some positive aspects, if you will, on the pension side. Uh, obviously make no mistake, Connecticut is still in a deep, deep pension hole. But the new budget that was approved recently does fully fund actuarially required contributions. And also back in July, the Treasury Department offered results. And these are not audited yet, by the way, but the results show that the pension system's performance was actually exceeding by quite a bit the assumed rates of return. So that's something positive. And of course, as you see in that slide, the other burden on the state, which we haven't mentioned yet, is the cities and the towns. Connecticut has 169 towns and many of them have been experiencing substantial distress, uh, particularly the larger metropolitan areas like Hartford and Waterbury and Bridgeport and some smaller places like West, West Haven. Uh, obviously the the risk to these places was much higher before the budget was approved, uh, but still I think the state and cities are, are both suffering from systemic issues that are far from resolved. Uh, I should mention that there's also now a municipality accountability review board which will hopefully be able to help some of these cities out.
0: This is uh- as is, is we know, more of a seminar on states rather than cities, but could you give us an update on what's going on in Hartford?
1: Yeah, so as you all know, Hartford, you know, was on the headlines recently. It was a city that was flirting with bankruptcy, and um, especially because uh, the state was unable to approve a budget till very late into the fiscal year, and the, the budget had vital uh, state aid for the city. Now that the budget is in place, it seems that Hartford is at least – for now, out of potential bankruptcy danger, but the city still has the systemic issues that are still plaguing the uh, the city, and there might still be uh, a refinancing on the table, uh, perhaps restructuring. So we'll see what happens with Hartford.
0: Thanks, Javier. Yep. I know you have some more uh, to talk about. I didn't mean to in- to interrupt you there.
1: Yeah, and so, in that the third slide, we we mentioned the political complications. Um, it, again, I won't go too much into the weeds, but I do want to mention that I think the the 123-day uh, budget impasse is very telling, because it shows that there's a deep political fractures within the legislature. Uh, again, Governor Dan Malloy has said he's not going to run uh, for another term. We have elections coming up next year, both for you know, governor and the, slate, the state legislature, which is under Democratic control. But I think the the impasse you know, showed that again. There's there's a deep fragmentation even within democratic line, the Democratic Party lines, and I think that that shows that the state might have some troubles passing key legislation that they'll need in the future to address these systemic issues.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that uh, all the executive and legislative branches here were controlled by the same party, at least in Illinois, uh, as as Caitlin will tell us about in a minute the uh there was a party split there between the the two so the the fact that they're all the same party and had this kind of budget delay tells you a lot about uh what's going on there
1: yeah absolutely i mean it got so bad at at one point that in one of the many budget iterations that they were they had proposed uh during the impasse they actually ended up approving a republican proposed plan because they had democratic lawmakers defect and vote for the the republican plan uh, Governor Damaloy obviously vetoed that plan, and what we have now is uh, I guess the result of a bipartisan effort. But I think that goes to show right that uh, in terms of politics, there's a you know a big division uh, even within the Democratic Party. And finally, uh, I wanted to pivot to Connecticut's bond landscape and the market. Um, as you see there, the most recent uh, general obligation bond issue was in March and it totaled almost $750 million. Uh, During the remainder of fiscal year 18, the state expects to issue up to $2.9 billion in tax-backed debt, and that includes special tax bonds, but excludes refundings and bonds issued for the University of Connecticut. And then that last bullet point there is very important. With the the new budget, the state has approved legislation that would allow the state to issue bonds backed by the income tax. And the state hasn't issued these revenue bonds yet. They're looking to issue uh, next year. But I think this is key too because the state is looking to securitize part of its income tax. And the fact is that the projections, at least for income
2: tax collections, have been looking pretty grim lately. Uh, yeah, you know, one of my favorite things <clears throat> or rather subjects in the market right now has to do with uh, the securitizations and the types of statutory language that goes into creating the security package for bondholders. And, you know, as, as long-time readers of DebtWire knows, it, you know, statutory liens is essentially a law that says bondholders have this particular revenue stream as their collateral and, therefore, you know, you can't impair it. Um, but what's interesting is that you can put as much language into a statutory lien as you want to, but if the underlying revenue isn't there, that doesn't really do you much good. And as we've seen with their income taxes, it's, they, they've never, they're never going to breach the $10 billion mark. And in fact, their projections are coming down and might even fall below $9 billion within the foreseeable future. So you know, bondholders can get a statutory lien, but if the underlying revenue stream starts to dry up or falls more than they had anticipated, it, it doesn't do you much good.
1: Yeah, these projections are changing fast. You know, just last year they thought that we're going to break the $10 billion mark, and now this year they're not even looking to break that mark, you know, five fiscal years from today. So and
0: Connecticut also has a fair amount of income disparity. Uh, so if some of the higher paid people start to leave due to problems brought on by SALT, that's not going to help either.
1: Yeah, I think that's, I mean, maybe that's what separates Connecticut a little bit from the other states that we're discussing here today, is that it's kind of ironic that in terms of income per capita at least, you know, we have the wealthiest state, but it has these deep systemic issues that are severely affecting uh, the fiscal um, matters in the state.
0: We did a report on uh, Connecticut's four or five largest cities a few months ago, and and will look pretty closely at them for our subscribers. Uh, you should be able to find it pretty easily under the research tab. Okay, uh, we are saving the uh, perhaps the most troubled state for last. Caitlin is uh, in Chicago today, Caitlin Devitt is in Chicago. What can you tell us about Illinois, Caitlin? Hi,
4: yeah, saving the worst for last, right? Mm -hmm. Well, Illinois is the lowest-rated state, and it um, also has the widest spreads, you know, showing that lowest-rated state. It's got the widest spreads among the states, and um, its problems, it's got many, but we're going to look at pensions and the political landscape, and it also has a chronic structural deficit, Um, and the question is whether or not any of these things will be able to be resolved as we head into kind of an uncertain future. So, the first slide, we take a look at pensions. And you see that the state has five pension plans with an aggregate funded level of 38%. The unfunded pension liability is 130 billion. That puts the state down at the bottom: New Jersey, Kentucky, Illinois. Um, its annual payment, 8.8 billion, takes a big chunk out of its um, takes a big chunk out of its annual uh, out of its operating budget every year. It also has an OPEB liability of 3.3 billion. That's 0% funded. They do pay go. So I want to talk just about a few things that might affect this pension the, the state, how the state handles its pensions in the future that are coming up. Um, first of all, as part of the FY18 budget that let the lawmakers pass a moderate pension reform that includes, for example, a five-year smoothing schedule that's gonna sort of decrease at least the FY18 um, pension payment by 800 million and some future ones, and also includes a a Tier 3 for new employees, which will lower the state's contribution in the future. Um, That probably won't get started, though, until about FY19, FY20. There's another proposal on the table that actually passed the Senate last year, the Democrat-controlled Senate, and also has support from uh, Republican Governor Bruce Rauner, which is sort of called the Consideration Model or Consideration Proposal. As most people know, the state Supreme Court has struck down any effort by either the state or the city to impair, um, benefits and accrued liability. So this consideration model supporters think it would pass court muster because it sort of offers employees a choice of cuts. And as I said that that has gotten some support, bipartisan support in the past. And, um, I'm betting it all. It'll come back again maybe in the next year or two, depending on what happens in the political picture. If that does come back up, it'll most likely be fast-tracked to the, to the state Supreme Court. Another possibility, you know, another thing that could affect pensions is Rahner has supposedly had his attorney talking with Washington to try to get Congress to pass some sort of, this might be a pipe dream. pass some sort of legislation that would have supersede, that would give some sort of federal um, restructuring ability that would supersede state control over pension. so that's something that he's at least talked about publicly and has been reported. It hasn't gone very far, but that's something maybe more of a campaign issue, maybe something that he's actively exploring.
0: Kaylin, can I interrupt you for a minute there? Um, how long has the governor been talking about, about this, do you know, offhand?
4: That just came up, I would say, four months ago, maybe late summer, he started talking
2: about it. And I heard something very similar uh, a few weeks back I was at a conference for uh, the Beard Group which is a publication for uh, restructuring and corporate attorneys and Andy Dillon who was formerly the treasurer of Michigan spoke and mentioned this proposal by Rahner and uh, he was engaged and then after Dillon said this uh, I believe it was um, another speaker uh, whose name escapes me, unfortunately, and if he's listening to this, he'll he'll, he'll probably send me a very pleasant email afterwards, but um, I disputed Rahner's ability to do that and said that there's no way at all that the federal government would ever allow any state to uh, impair its obligations, whether they're bonds or whether they're pensions. And, you know, I'd have to say you'd have to talk to other governors, too, about that, because once you allow one state to do that, it, it, it rises the cost, excuse me, it increases the cost of capital for all the states because then that might be available, to every other state like a New Jersey or like a Connecticut. So that, that pretty much, if one state goes, all of them will have to go, and I don't think the federal government wants to see that. Yeah, I,
0: I agree. I, I don't think Congress would want to deal with this at all. I just don't see. If I was a U.S. congressman, I'd say, what's in it for me? And uh, yeah, i very
4: I, controversial.
0: Yeah, I, I just don't see why they'd want to get mixed up in this. Yeah.
4: Yeah. Um, well, another thing that could affect the national that comes out of Illinois, but could affect the national sort of landscape um, for pensions and like you are talking about for other states, is that the U.S. Supreme Court is going to take up probably in January or February uh, a, a case called Janus versus Afsme, and um, that originates in Illinois. It actually, comes out of um, some uh, from Bronner. Some action he took in um, 2015, and it's a it's a issue over right whether or not non-member non-union members need to pay fees. This is a, one of the Supreme Court's kind of biggest, most high-profile cases that it's going to take up, and and the sentiment is, and people think that there has a good chance of an anti-union ruling coming down, and if that happens that's gonna sort of start to change some of the political some of the sentiment around unions. So that these are you know, that's another thing that could sort of affect the pension and union conversation going forward.
0: Yeah, I, I I've heard of that case as well and it, it does seem to be flying maybe a little bit under the radar. But uh it it could be a big decision.
4: Yeah, it would overturn forty years of, you know, of um, pretty serious rulings on that and on that has strengthened public unions. So, just to look very quickly at the last two points, um, pensions are not just a problem for the state, it's also locals. The state just recently came out with a report on the 671 pension funds um, throughout Illinois. Fifteen of those are either large like Chicago, Cook County or CPOE or, or the state and the others are mostly police and fire pension funds throughout the state. They also have a—I um, uh, can't remember the number right now. I think it's $335 billion unfunded liability altogether, and an aggregate funded ratio of 48%. That funded ratio has gone down. The unfunded liability uh, went up by about 30 billion from FY 15 to 16. And just as an illustration of that, to look at Springfield, which is the state's capital city, their annual pension payment next year is expected to be more than its property tax levy.
0: Yeah, that, that's that's quite a statement. I wonder if there are any other cities out in in uh, Illinois that have that same uh, calculation.
4: Yeah, it's something to take a look at. I mean, I know that from that recent report. I would say, you know, roughly maybe a third of the pension funds are have more beneficiaries than um, active employees are either have that now or are on track to have that by about 2019. So it's a problem that seems like it's only going to get bigger.
2: Oh, and I finally remember the person at that conference who was uh, disputing Andy Dillon. And this is important. His name was Bill Brandt, and he was the former head of the Illinois Finance Authority. Um, and so, if if you have, sorry, just to bring it back to Pendants real quick, but it was important that he said this because if you have people within the state, um, this is not actively kind of, he's not within the state anymore, but people who are very familiar with the state's finances saying that, you know, having federal oversight over some impairment of, of state liabilities um, that, that was a pretty strong argument uh, to the contrary so sorry to bring it back to that but I did want to remember that because of that person's prior position so B- Bill
0: Brent was saying that Congress would not do anything to allow states to impair contracts then right correct
1: okay
4: yeah it might be a campaign talking point from from honor like I said it started a few months ago which is when kind of gubernatorial campaign started in earnest. Um, to look at the next slide, this one focuses on the state's bill backlog. Illinois has a long history of deferring payments. Seth was talking about how New Jersey tends to build up its liquidity by by uh, deferring pension payments. Well, Illinois does that by putting off its its payments to vendors, and this reached um, a historic high last June at sixteen point seven billion when the state was at the tail end of a more than two year budget impasse amid a big political battle between the Republicans and the Democrat controlled General Assembly. The state issued six billion of GOs in October. That brought that down to nine point one billion as of today. Um but the state's own the, I mean the governor's own office of budget management and rating agencies and many by siders Note that that was a short-term solution that that won't address kind of this long-term habit of deferring payments every year. And in fact, that the, according to the governor's office of budget management, the bill backlog is on track to grow back to 13.6 billion by FY 23 unless there's other changes that are made. And one of the problems with that is that among just the general practice is that the interest on those bills ranges from nine to up to 12 percent. So that's but it's a very expensive habit for the state to have. And for the next slide, um, the political landscape in Illinois is probably one of the most dysfunctional. It's kind of sort of infamous over the last couple of years as the state was unable to come to any sort of legislative agreement. In July, the Democratic-controlled uh, General Assembly finally rammed through a new budget, FY18, over Ronner's veto. Um, that staved off the state probably becoming the first junk level, um, geo rated state in recent history. However, those political pressures, um, uh, remain unresolved and in fact could reemerge and, and are likely to reemerge in, in FY18. The state, as I mentioned, already has for several months now had its, the, the gubernatorial election is in November of 18 and it's already been going on for several months. It's the most costly in the country. Um, you have Governor Rahner, who now faces, as of two days ago, a new Republican opponent, State Rep, Jeannie Ives. She represents, I would say, the conservative wing of the Republican Party. She calls Rahner Benedict Rahner for betraying some of the more conservative values. And he also, um, on the Democratic side faces J.B. Pritzker and Chris Kennedy, two high profile candidates, and, um, State Senator Daniel Biss. Pritzker is probably considered the front runner right now. But Kennedy's right behind him. It's called the Battle of Billionaires between Pritzker and Rahner. And in terms of policies, um, Pritzker and Kennedy both support a progressive income tax. The FY18 budget increased um, individual and corporate income tax, but both Pritzker and, and Kennedy support a progressive income tax. Pritzker also supports taxing marijuana, which he estimates could raise 300 to 500 million a year for the state. And Kennedy wants a um, a major overhaul of the
0: property tax system. So right now, Caitlin, the uh, the state personal income tax is a flat rate. Am I right? Yeah, okay.
4: 325 and then it went up to
0: uh, 4.95%. Right. Yeah, that's somewhat unusual. Most states, I, well, I, I'm a resident of New York, so I guess I've been uh, dealing with that. I know it's progressive in New York, and I think in most other states that have an income tax.
4: Yeah, I think that'll be. I think it'll be an issue coming up next year. Soon as the top two Democratic contenders are both in favor of it, uh, the, the state legislature will likely continue to be held by Democrats. Even though there was a, a many, uh, I think 34 retirements from the from both chambers this year, with many legislators resigning sort of in disgust, saying that they couldn't take it anymore. What was going on in Springfield?
0: When, uh, when state legislators get tired of politics, you know that it's, that it's uh, getting old. True.
4: So looking forward um, a little bit, just with the economic environment, um, the uh, Office of Management and Budget expects structural deficits every year, reaching, I think, 2.5 in FY19, and then being about 1.8, 1.5 through FY23. They also predict slow economic growth um, jobs, wages, consumption—all coming in below national levels—and that will um, translate into anemic revenue growth, particularly with sales and income tax, which is the state's two main um, two main revenue sources. There's some other other pressures that the state faces. One, I just wanted to mention the, the transportation lockbox. This is a this is a measure that voters passed in November, last November in the ballot. And it sets aside all transportation-related revenue, which is roughly $3 billion for the state, and requires the state to use it only for transportation-related projects. Um, so, opponents to this think that it's going to cramp the state's financial flexibility going forward, and it certainly is taking a large chunk of change off the table for them. There's also SALT, which we talked about with other states in New Jersey. Um, Illinois is one of the top five so-called donor states, so that that could affect the state. And also, declining population continues. The state has one of the worst um, exoduses uh, among the among the country. And then finally, just looking quickly at trading, um, as I said, widest spreads. They reached a peak, I think, in July, in late June, right before when everybody was kind of on edge about this. Downgrade to junk, um, the spread spiked to 350 basis points, and then, as you can see from the chart, after the, they were able, they signed a budget in July 4th, um, the prices strengthened. And part of the reason I also want to say quickly another pressure that also accounts for that big spread at the time was that the court, the state was in court fighting over its Medicaid, and um, and the judge was ruling that the Medicaid. Uh, um, pay, that the state must make it and that it's on par possibly with bond payments. That question is still out there and that could be another pressure for the state going forward.
0: So that case is still pending?
4: The case is not still pending, no, because it was a budget-related. So once they passed the budget, it went away um, because the budget was mostly, until then, for the last two years, the budget was, money was mostly being appropriated through like a series of court actions and ongoing appropriations. So it was one of those court actions But if it comes up again, if there's another budget stalemate or anything else happens, the question of where Medicaid payments come in and and if they're possibly on par with or even superior to pensions and bond payments, that question uh, will come back up again.
0: Okay. Thank you, Caitlin. Uh, We do have time for a couple of questions. I'm a little bit too far away from our screen to see what the questions are, but maybe Javier can help us.
1: Yep. Uh, so one of the – sorry, let me just grab the mic. Glasses. So one of the questions is, has the new governor – and this is uh, regarding Pennsylvania. Has the new governor talked about repealing Chapter 57, the Chapter 57 tax package, or will the sales tax reduction and estate tax elimination go as scheduled?
2: I think this is in reference to New Jersey and Phil Murphy. So uh That's right, sorry. It's all right. Uh the, the, the backdrop uh to this is Governor Christie has implemented some reductions in the sales tax and uh wants to eliminate the estate tax. So a couple of things. The sales tax is, as we all know, um regressive in the fact that it, it it hits poor families harder. I, while Murphy has not spoken specifically, or at least not that I've seen, about the sales tax reduction, he hasn't come out and said that it's not going to happen. Um, the estate tax is a little more complex of an issue. Uh, I was doing some research, and the, the New Jersey Business and Industry Association talked about the estate tax and the inheritance tax being one of the largest factors that uh, prohibits many businesses from expanding within New Jersey and from retirees staying in New Jersey, so if you're going to get up another storefront, you're probably not going to do it in New Jersey. And if you plan on retiring, you're not going to do it in New Jersey either. Um, by eliminating the the estate tax, people might stay here a lot longer, and they might try and expand businesses. So it has a way of boosting state revenues in the sense that people would remain in the state. Uh, but yeah, obviously there is a loss of uh, estate revenue if you do eliminate that estate tax. So that one is a slightly more um, uh, complicated. I I think if I were to be a betting man, and I'm not, I will say that I, I think that the estate tax will probably stay, only because in New Jersey they are talking about things like millionaires' taxes and really going after the people with the deep pockets, which the estate taxes is, is meant to target. Hope that answers your question. Thanks, Seth. We do have
0: one other question. Are there any other states to watch out for? Uh, Oklahoma is a state that uh, has been having a few problems lately. That's, that's one that we're keeping an eye on. There's also Kansas and Kentucky. Kansas uh, passed, as everyone here probably knows, some income tax cuts a few years ago, which, which did not have the intended effect. Uh, it's put the state in a bit of a bind. Uh, and uh, Kentucky has some big pension problems. Those, those are the first three that come to mind.
4: I would say also Louisiana, um, they're, facing this, they're facing the expiration of some um, major tax increases, and I think it's, they're facing the so-called fiscal cliff, and next year, they're going to have to come back and try to fill that in. That's going to be a contentious session.
0: That'll, that'll um, be for their fiscal year 19 budget. Am, am I right, Caitlin?
4: Yeah, for their fiscal 19 budget, and it's going to also impact their borrowing ability because they're restricted to borrow to a certain level of their revenue.
0: Okay, that appears to be about it for uh, for questions from our listeners. Uh, I'd like to thank everyone for uh, attending this presentation and it will be on our website later this afternoon. Thanks to everyone. Have a good day.